the clock is stuck on 714. <laughs> it's like Michael said, time, you know, it shifts on retreat. Oh, just hit 715. I've lowered my expectations. <laughs> For some reason, when I was walking over here now in the, um, in the beautiful night, this beautiful uh, March, late winter night in New England, the stars are out and bright and um, just feeling the cold air and the beauty of the air and thinking of all of you <clears throat> walking in the door and seeing the, the box, the key return and just imagining what might be going through your minds and hearts, you know, that, that it's, it's like the momentum, you know, is in. The, the, we're, we're in that part of the retreat where there's this preparation for, for returning home. So as I was walking up here, I, Sister Odilla came to me. Sister Odilla was my sixth grade teacher. And she said, a word to the wise is sufficient. And I remember that. So my word to the wise here is, if you go out this evening to experience the sky and the cold air, be mindful of your steps. Um, because it's, uh, the ground is frozen and, and there's some ice. And uh, I didn't fall, but i just uh, just aware of that. Mm. this being human, you know, and how do we care for ourselves. So a word to the wise is sufficient. Um, well, you're probably going to hear more than just a word from me, uh, but it actually kind of called me into thinking about, you know, all the times I've listened to Dharma talks and, and occasionally, on a rare occasion, on a very rare occasion, Actually, someone might speak about how to listen to a Dharma talk. Um, and so I wanted to say a little bit about that. Actually, could, we could give a whole talk on how to listen to a Dharma talk. But the most important thing, I think, is to settle into your own body. To really settle into the, to the, the, the immediacy of being present with your own being. And maybe if you can, to actually just rest in trust that you will hear something, hopefully something, that might be useful to you. I mean, we could just keep it that simple, that might be useful to you. So, so you don't have to catch every single thing, you know, and you don't have to necessarily analyze it. Maybe just receive and see. See what lands for you or see what... You just feel in your own mind and heart, it's like, mm, yeah, you know, that's something I want to reflect on more. Or just, just let, it, let it infuse you in the way that nourishes you and your, your dharma being, your, your own journey of awakening. You know, it's all, in some ways, we're all so interconnected, of course, but the unfolding is a very natural process, really. And you know, part of you know, a big part of practice is getting out of our own way. Anyone notice that? Yeah. You know. So I have all these beautiful questions here in my hand, and we'll just offer them to the bell <laughs> to, uh, you know, to hold, um, because you know they may get answered and they may not through this talk. But many of them, as Michael said, are about relationship, relationship to oneself, relationship to practice, relationship with others, ambition, um, many more, you know, how to work with lust, you know, again, could be a whole Dharma talk, won't be this one, but, um, you know, you might get some insights into it. (laughs) Maybe you already have. Um, You know, so these questions are are huge for us, and we want to know, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I just, I know myself as a, as a student and how much I would just hunger for these teachings and kind of hang on, 
on every word, you know, and feel very enriched by it. And I have, you know, had the good fortune to have very good teachers. Um, And, um, you know, everybody has their own teaching style. So, you know, just see what, what feels useful for you. And the other thing I was thinking about in terms of questions, something that, um, that Rilke, the poet, said, you know, we, we learn to love the questions. And we learn to love the questions, and, and we actually live into the answers. You know, no one's really going to give us the answer, which mean, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with asking a question. In fact, it's, often it's very skillful. We ask a question, teacher answers it, or we read something that is helpful to us, and there's clarity. It's helpful. But in terms of those big life questions, you know, about practice and, you know, do I do the spiritual path or do I do the, you know, traditional path? It's like, I can't answer that for you. I can't even answer it for myself. (laughs) Really, I really mean that. I just live. You know, and after a while what happens is you know, you, you just get more confident. You just, there's just, I don't even know if you get more. You experience more confidence in that flow in your life, however it unfolds, in whatever way you engage. And that's, that's something to respect and to trust and to treasure. And it doesn't mean that, you know, one always knows or doubt never arises again or, or uh, our heart doesn't contract or, or doesn't get caught in, you know, conditioned ways of thinking. Uh, but that's, that's why we have community. Well, that's why we have sangha and dharma friends to go to, you know. It's a, it's a blessing, and we will talk about that more tomorrow in terms of um, transitioning home and, and support, etc. So tonight, uh, I'd like to, I would like to talk a bit about wise relating on the noble path, you know, and what this, you know, what the Buddha actually uh, instructed on in that in that domain. You know, many many teachings around relating. You know, he, he, he taught to sangha, sangha of monastics, monks and nuns, and also lay people. He was, he was often responding to people's questions about difficulty in relationship with themselves or others. So you may find in the relationship with yourself, even today, who knows, there's is, is a whole world happening from beginning of the day till now. But, you know, like as Michael said earlier this morning, that oftentimes on, a, on the last day of a retreat, you know, the mind just, it just gets more active. You know, you might notice thoughts come up more. And um, I, hope, I hope we can spare you the suffering. I, I spent many times being upset about that on retreat. You know, I, I didn't like that that sense of like spaciousness and calm and space between thought was suddenly just felt like corralled upon by, you know, a flood of thoughts about, about going home, you know, or, or just, and, and they, can, they can take such a, <laughs> as a matter of fact, they're often familiar, but they can go something like this, like, I'm gonna fill in the blank. You know, you've got your whole life changed and planned out, right? How are you going to? what you're going to do and what's going to change and who you're going to relate to and how great it's going to be. And let me tell you, if you don't see that that's actually just thinking and imagining and fantasizing, it might feel good. If you don't see that clearly, you're going to have a crash because we don't know. How do we know what's going to happen? In the very next second, I don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth. So, you know, is it human and understandable that the mind does that? Of course it is. It's nothing to condemn oneself for. That's like extra. That's like the second arrow, extra suffering. You don't need it. Just like, oh, there it is, that planning mind, that, that longing. We can even see underneath. It's a longing for what? It's a longing often for peace, for a sense of connection, for harmony, you know, for living wisely. Hmm, 
Those are great aspirations. I wouldn't knock those. But sometimes we just have to come back to this humble moment and say, we'll see, we'll see. Can I just commit to practicing right in this moment? And what do we even mean by practice, practice, practice? What, is, you know, what, is, what are we practicing? It's just being, actually. It's bringing a wise attention to this very moment. Like, right now, what's happening? Just notice it. I can feel energy in my chest. I can feel this sense of spaciousness, kind of comfort with a not knowing. Uh, I, I see your faces. I, I feel a sense of uh, love, love for our shared humanity. Hmm. That's, that's practice, but, you know, in a way it's kind of a weird word. You know, it's, it's, it's using the skills that we're offered here in our moment-to-moment experience as best we can. And they become, you know, they, if you're wondering, they, the more we practice, it's kind of like anything, the more we practice something, it becomes almost second nature. I remember when I was learning how to drive a stick shift and I was in Provincetown and it was a really hot day and it was at the beach and there were a lot of cars behind me waiting to go lay on the beach and have a good time. And I was in the driver's seat, you know, and um, my companion was saying, you know, just do this and just do that. And, you know, and there was like two guys really buff, you know, behind me in like a convertible you know, like totally perfect. And I'm like, mm, 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 you know, and I just remember saying like, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. Like in that moment, you know, it was just, I couldn't imagine. I honestly couldn't imagine that one day I wouldn't even be thinking about it. You know, I just, I just had this thought about looking into the future and feeling like a failure. And then, you know, I don't know, one day I remembered that when I was driving my stick shift. It's like, oh. I couldn't even think about it. If I tried to think about it, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. You know what I mean? It was just in, it was just in there. And practice is like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's not like, ooh, you know, (laughs) I'll just hang out and it'll happen. You know, you aren't just hanging out here and it'll happen. You know, you've been working. You've been bringing, you know, a lot of beautiful effort into your practice and, and hanging in there with it, hanging in there even when it's difficult. So, you know, the Buddha, he, he talked about these three pillars, the three pillars of, of awakening, I like the word pillar because it's, it's like what holds something up, right? It's stabilizing. So the three pillars are, one of them, the first one is the practice of non-harm. A commitment to ethical behavior. It's really interesting, that's the first one. It's really said that um, if we don't, if we don't engage in the practice of non-harm, and yet we, you know, we meditate a lot, you know, we whatever, come on retreats or sit a lot, but we don't really pay attention to the practice of non-harm, you know, we could do that till the cows come home. We we know what happens with cows; they graze, right? <laughs> um, but we're, you know, we're not. It's like it is like rowing a boat that's tied to the dock. So I'm going to come back to that first pillar, but I want to go through the other two first, which will be probably a review for you because it's what you've been practicing these last number of days. So the second pillar is, is the practice of meditation and specifically concentration. So what, what did he mean by that? Well, the best way I can describe that is to tell you the story about Molly. Molly was a uh, beautiful black lab who my dear friend, we'll call her Mary, 
um, in our 20s, she um, got Molly as a, a puppy. And this puppy was very sweet and very cute, and Mary loved this puppy. And so she just thought it was really cute that the puppy would jump up and, you know, isn't that cute, and play and wrestle and jump up and come to the table and have some food. And, you know, Molly was really cute, you know. But, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months later, 60 pounds more, a little bigger, it wasn't cute anymore. You know, Molly would jump up, come to the table. You know, it was you know, not fun to be jumped upon by a dog that large. And um, it was a, just a real teaching about what happened with not training, you know, with not training. And, you know, I don't fault my friend Mary. We were in our 20s. It was probably her first dog. But, you know, we suffered from that. And I think Molly, I know Molly suffered. She ended up being tied a lot because she was hard to manage. So, you know, this is, this is relatable, isn't it? Like what happens if we don't train our minds? If we don't train our minds, we don't see clearly. And if we don't see clearly, we're, on a, we're in the chain reaction. Like over and over again, we're just in this reactive chain of trying to feel good, trying to avoid what, isn't, what doesn't feel good. And if you really look into your mind, you see it. You see it. It's like, whoa, there it is again. There it is again. There it is again. It's like a hamster on a wheel. At least the hamster gets some exercise. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's, it's getting nowhere fast. And we don't even, you know, if we look at our world, and I say this not from a place of judgment, so many beings are caught in that wheel without any notion that there's a way out of that other than goodbye, life's over. When we engage in this practice or other forms of practice that are similar to it, when we engage in the practice of paying attention, slowing down, paying attention, waking up the mind, training the mind to pay attention. How do we train it to pay attention? Go back to the anchor. It learns how to pay attention, just like Molly would have learned if Mary said, sit, sit, no, sit. Our minds learn, and, it, and our minds like it, if you haven't noticed that already. They, they, the mind likes to feel concentrated. It's pleasant. It's calm. It's not permanent. It's not necessarily controllable, but we can guide our attention there. We can guide our attention there. And over time, it, it naturally, I'm sure you've seen that over the course of, of these few days, that, you know, it, it just will go back. It'll go back to the breath or whatever your anchor is. It'll go back to the posture of sitting. It'll go back to sound because it, it rests there. It, it, it's calmed there. It rejuvenates there. It, it is energized there. It is nourished there. Is its job to stay there all the time? No. It's, it's not what's going to happen. It's going to be drawn to whatever else grabs its attention, whether it's lust, whether it's a thought about ambition, whether it's thinking about a relationship, whether it's hunger, whether it's sleepiness, whether it's a joyful state of bliss. It will be drawn there. And then it will leave. And why? Why? Is it because you did something right or wrong? You all could answer this question. No. That's not why. Why is because it's the nature of life for things to come and go, for conditions to come together, for things to arise and disappear, including the, this, this very thing we're in. Someday, dust. This is the nature of life. It doesn't have to be depressing. It can wake us up to the immediacy of being alive, to the immediacy of how we relate to ourselves, to another. That can bring tremendous joy and peace. You know, even if we're sitting with 
maybe we're sitting in our small group and someone is experiencing pain, heartache, and there's tears. We know what it feels like in our hearts sitting with that being. We're there. Why are we there? Because we know that feeling. We know that heartache. We know that loss. We may not know the story of the loss, but we know that feeling. And our hearts are open. There's nothing to protect from. We can be present with it. And if we can't be present with it, wisdom tells us that's okay. Take care. If this is too much to receive, that's not, a, that's not your problem. It's not the other person's problem either. You just, you just care for yourself. You pause, you sit, you go to neutral. You allow for. These are the fruits of practice. The fruits of practice is that, uh, that we start to see the truth of life. We start to see the nature of life. We start to see the interconnectedness, the universality of being human. And I'm not saying there aren't con- different conditions in our world that impact us in very, very dramatic ways based on our gender, based on our race, based on our sexuality. Please don't misunderstand. This isn't like, oh, isn't it nice? We are one. It's like, yeah, conditions impact us. What I'm really speaking to, though, is, is that humanity that we all share that none of us can avoid this being human. And this practice opens us up to seeing it more clearly. And when we can see more clearly these conditions of life, that things are con- constantly changing. Not because we know that, we intellectually know that, we, we've experienced it directly. And we experience the courage to be with it. Because it's kind of, it's kind of an insecure feeling, isn't it? When you really start to notice how quickly things come and go, it, it's like, whoa. You're kind of opening up to, you know, weather patterns. You know, can we be with that? So we see that. And, and, and we see, oh yeah, if that's happening in this mind-heart system, hmm, guess what? Happening in everyone else's. It cuts through the complete delusion of separateness. Gone. When we see our own humanity clearly and when we can meet it with wisdom and compassion, then we can meet anyone else in the same way. It's just the law of nature. Hmm. I haven't looked at my notes. Hmm. That's such a gift, isn't it? I mean, it's such a relief. It's such a relief to be real. It's such a relief to come home. It's such a relief to, to not have to be something. Oscar Wilde, those of you who don't know, he's an Irish poet, playwright, gay man, ended up being persecuted for his sexuality. Amazing sense of humor. He just said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. So, ethical behavior, haven't gotten to that yet. Meditation, concentration, clarity of mind allows for insight to arise on its own. You know, we, we keep doing the practice and then we're surprised by an insight. You know, but it's the fruit of practice. It's so funny because... Um, you kind of think, like, I have to do this, I have to do that, and all of a sudden you're just sitting there peeling an orange. It's like, whoa, you know, some understanding happens. 
you know, it's, it's like Kabir, say, you know, the poem of Kabir is it's like you're knocking on a door from the inside. You know, we're already there. We just don't realize it. So the obscurations start to, to move away with this, with, again, with our practice and, and just seeing these insights. I mean, you know, just a simple example, and I'm sure many of you experience this, and we refer to it because a lot of people do experience it, like going home, you know, we're going home, like I'm talking about in the middle of a retreat, one after another, lousy sitting, can't stand it, you know, I'm not doing it right, this is terrible, you know, that's really, it's the place, this practice isn't for me, I don't know about those teachers, they're not so great, you know, I could get some better instruction here, now this practice isn't really for me, now I just can't stand it, I'm getting out of here, I'm leaving, I'm going home. And, um, you know, but it's late in the day, it's cold out, you know, it's dark, maybe I'll just go tomorrow. You know, but, you know, I have to face that peanut butter again at night. (laughs) It's it's a challenge. It's not a steak. But, okay, so I'll just hang in there till the morning. But, you know, this practice is like, not for me. This doesn't work for me. I'm I'm not even sure what they're doing here. You know, who knows how it goes, you know. It's either them or us. It's usually the way the story goes. Go to bed, go to sleep, get up, come back. Next morning, sit. Calm. Quiet. Body feels still. Look up at the Buddha. Oh, so beautiful. (laughs) I'm going to go to Burma next week. (laughs) This is my life. And you know what? It actually may be your life. Sometimes that taste, that's exactly what happens. It becomes your life. But you can't know that. But the point being, what do you do? You say, oh, that yesterday was an aberration. Was it? Or was there just simply not seeing? It, when we reflect back, sometimes it's useful to actually reflect back so we can understand more. You know, what happened was like, oh, I didn't do something right, and otherwise my sitting would have gone better. Or, oh, that was just a fluky thing. I'm so much better now. This is great. It's all just going to be great from now on. No. Right? We know you're laughing because you know that's not true. (laughs) But, you know, we can look back and go, oh, that simple, simple piece that so often we can miss, myself included, is not seeing, not liking. So when we don't see not liking what happens, we try to get rid of what we don't like. You know, the definition, you know, it's, it's kind of insanity, isn't it? When you really look at it, it's like, can you really get rid of what you don't like? It usually makes it worse. But that's what happens. We get, it's like you've got to get rid of it. And then there's a whole story around of it. When we can see simply not liking Now, sometimes not liking, and this has helped me a lot in my practice, it goes more like this. Hating, 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 hating. It's really helped me. It's like, you know, the volume goes up because that's really what's going on. But at some point, it's just notice, oh yeah, it's just, it's really unpleasant. That's all that's happening. And what's my relationship to the unpleasant? I want to get rid of it. So we can widen the lens and just see it's not liking, it's unpleasant, want to get rid of it. Okay, that's what's happening right now in this moment. That's it. And we can see it also with the pleasant. You know, how many of you had an ex- had experience when you were on retreat where you're just, you know, you, it's like it feels so good and you've, you've already written that book, you know? <laughs> and, you know, you've already mastered that task and written the poems and, you know, created the music or whatever and it feels so good and it feels so true and then, you know, Another sitting later, it's like it's gone. And, and often the habitual thinking is, what did I do wrong that it's gone? Absolutely nothing. The only thing that was missing was not seeing pleasant, joy, exuberance. Because our minds create stories around these states of mind, pleasant and unpleasant. And when we can begin to really see that, everything changes. We don't get, we're not that hamster on the wheel anymore. There's an opportunity to get off the wheel. 
And even when we're back on the wheel again and we're caught, what happens is we start to notice more quickly that we're caught and we judge it less. It's like, oh, the mind is caught. Heart is caught. Or if we're really, really caught and, and we know it and it's so, so painful, we, you know, we call up Michael, you know? <laughs> we call up our Dharma friend. We say, oh, my mind is so caught in this. I, I can't see anything. I can't see through it. And you have, you know, some loving response from, you know, a Sangha friend. Or someone in your life who you trust isn't going to try to really even fix it. It's just going to help you be present. These are the joys of practice. These are the fruits of practice. This is the doorway to liberation, really, when we, when we can begin to see that, that grasping and begin to let go. And please make no mistake about it, it actually takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to be present with this human condition. My only point about that, though, is what's the alternative? I mean, seriously, what's the alternative? It's a hell realm. And when we think about our human relationships, you know, it's, it's kind of a place where we can get caught and stuck, you know. But the Buddha didn't say don't have relationships. People really misinterpret the teachings on attachment. I mean, if, you're, if you have any relationship in your life, there's going to be attachment. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Will it bring you some suffering? Yes, but that's part of being in a human form. How do we relate? How do we relate when, when the conditions aren't so great? Or how do we relate when we're in a, maybe we're in a job that is very difficult for us, or we're in a relationship that's difficult for us, or we're... Uh, we're in a group or even a sangha that's difficult for us and we're struggling. How, how, do, we, how do we relate? What, what, do we, what do we draw on? We can be so overwhelmed or we can, so many of you have talked about, you know, how upsetting it is when something happens around you that feels like it doesn't fit in with what we've asked people to do, whether it's keeping silence or, uh, you know, certain, certain forms. And then you, you get a great practice right there. Like, how do I relate to the feelings that arise? You know, the feelings of anger or upset, you know, or judgment. You know, when you're on retreat, you know, the practice is you notice, you work with it. It doesn't mean you may not speak to a teacher about something, you know. And in life... I don't know, waking life, daily life, maybe it's not that different. We still pay attention to what's happening. But, you know, it doesn't mean we just, you know, stand in our house that's burning and go, fire, fire, aversion, aversion. <laughs> no. That is hardly wisdom. Unless you said it yourself and you're, I don't know. And there's a whole other issue going on there. But, um, you know, we... we we take action, you know, we, we, I mean, the Buddha talked in, in detail about the Eightfold Noble Path, the path of practice. So the first part of the path is understanding, is, why, is, is, is the fruits of your practice in here, clear seeing, wise understanding, that's the first part of that Eightfold Noble Path. Without that understanding, we're lost, we're the hamster in the wheel. I know I keep repeating myself, but it's an important point. You know, wise understanding. So why, that wise understanding influences, actually fuels our thinking. It, it allows us to see clearly. It allows us to see clearly. But he didn't stop there. He didn't say, okay, you know, meditate, concentrate, bring wise effort to your practice, and stay on the cushion for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, he didn't say that. He didn't even do that himself. He's very much engaged in community. Those were parts of the Eightfold Path. You know, it's, it's like if you don't practice, you, your mind isn't, isn't going to 
get the clarity. So we need the practice. We need the practice. It brings us to wise understanding. Then there's this whole middle part. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. That is the ethical behavior. That is the commitment to non-harm. That's where the rubber meets the road. Why? Because we're so imperfect at it. It's impossible to be perfect at it. In fact, usually how we learn is after the fact. It's after the fact. So how many times have we, you know, either been in conversation or um, kind of realized like, ooh, what was in, you know, like say in terms of looking at speech. He gave some very clear instructions about speech. The first, you know, it was, is, not, not to, is to tell the truth. It's not to lie. You know, he didn't say then, tell the truth all the time, everywhere, without discrimination. He said, you know, there's a time and a place. And sometimes we may refrain from speaking what we see because it wouldn't be skillful, it wouldn't be helpful. There are other times we might, it might be very difficult to say the truth, but we know it's something we need to do. You know, even if it's going to cause disruption. You know, any, any woman or man who has spoken to, spoken up against um, sexual misconduct from a leader, that's courage. You know, that's, that's speaking the truth in, in an incredibly courageous way and usually needs a lot of support, and usually is in service of the good. It's in service of the good. It's, it's in service of, not, of harm not continuing. It doesn't mean that the result is all nice and easy. We all know this. We just have to look at our, read the news, look at our culture. You know, there's, there's some things are happening here. You know, what, how do we skillfully speak truth to power? And, you know, I may be talking on more of a larger scale here, but maybe it's in relationship with just one other person, you know, or with ourselves, with our very own selves. You know, don't you get tired of that harangue? Bam, 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 you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you should do it this way, what about that? Actually, my bam wasn't strong enough. It's more like, mm. You know, we start to see that more. It's like, whoa, what's it feel like on the other end of that? Ouch. So maybe we see like, oh, there's that conditioned, that conditioning that it's not good enough. I'm not good enough. It's not good enough. So we start to bring that wisdom to even that. It's like, whoa, maybe we, maybe we feel into the, the suffering part of it, the pain of it, bring some compassion. Or maybe we come through the wisdom door and go, that's just, you know, those are just thoughts. I don't have to believe those thoughts. They're conditioned thoughts. And we find our way through in that relationship with ourselves. You know, or whether, or if it's with another. You know, the challenge of, you know, really feeling like we're right in a situation. I was thinking about somebody's um, question about how we, um, how we speak to our, the, the person who used the language, the inner child. And I, you know, what immediately came to me is, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. You know, maybe with a hand on, you know, on your heart. Like I'm, I'm, or maybe the words don't even come. You just feel the warmth of your hand, like that sense of caring for yourself. And then the next thought that came to me was Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's, you know, so much of his teaching was about Sangha, in relationship in Sangha. And he, w- he would say, and I, I can't do his accent, but this beautiful, simple voice of like, how can I care for you, my darling? You know, how can I help you, my darling? You know, and I was thinking, you know, when I'm in the middle of a disagreement with my beloved, and I'm pretty attached to my point of view, and her point of view is not the same, I can tell you, I am not thinking, how can I be there for you, my darling? (laughs) It's just not the first thought that comes to my mind. But you know what? It might be the fourth, fifth, sixth. At some point, what happens is that need to be right is much more painful. It's much more painful than just feeling the sense of loss, not being heard, or the sense of struggle that we're caught in something. 
You know, the desire of the heart is to know the truth of interconnectedness. You know, we can really notice this when, let's say, you, you ha- you're upset with somebody, and maybe for very good reason, and maybe it's from something in the past or someone you work with or someone you haven't seen for a long time. It could be months later, they walk through the door. What do you see? You see that upset. That They become this. They are no longer a human being, you know, with with a range of what their experience is in that moment. They are what they did to me. And please don't misunderstand, I am not saying we don't hold people accountable. I, I do not believe that's what the Buddha talked about at all. He talked about wise relationship, he talked about ethical behavior so we don't harm each other. And we help each other. That story I told you about my father. We help each other around non-harm. Because some things we just do unconsciously. So I'm not suggesting anything like that. But when we notice that projection of mind and we don't see the person clearly or we don't see ourselves clearly, that's an opportunity to wake up. That's an opportunity to just notice it. It's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I, I learned that on retreat once. I was, you know, some of you have probably heard me tell this story before, but it, 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 was, it, was, it was somebody in the, it was in the dining hall. And um, it, was, it was a person of the male gender and who was, you know, had long legs and a tall being and really enjoyed his lunch and would take a long time eating his lunch. Now, isn't that interesting? I noticed that because I used to take a long time eating my lunch. But one time I was next to him and, he, you know, he was kind of spread out and the way he chewed was like, mm-hmm, you know, <laughs> it was really chewy. And um, I hated him. <laughs> I mean, really, it was like, I didn't know the guy, I hated him. And then I'd see him like a day later. He wasn't even eating lunch. He was just walking through the door. I hated him. <laughs> you know, and this went on for a little bit. And then one time, he, he was walking through the door. Thank God we don't talk sometimes. He was, he was walking through the door, and I just looked at him, and I loved him. You know, like, it just broke open. It was like, in a moment. Like, that was just all a dream. It had nothing to do with this human being. And you know what? It had nothing to do with this human being either. It was just aversion. It was just aversion and grabbing onto it and making up a story. And then it just broke. Here's the thing I wanted to, like, oh, you. <laughs> Can I take your dish? You know. <laughs> it's a gift. You know, it's a gift. Because it's not just about that moment on retreat. It's about life, isn't it? And we learn some of these lessons, you know, over and over again. Thank goodness. Thank goodness we have the opportunity to learn them over again or to lovingly remind each other of them. You know, when we can take back that, that projection... Then we're, then we're in a really different ball game. We're in a really different field of being alive. We're in that quivering place. Like now. And then anything's possible. And we find things coming out of our mouths that we never would have expected. Or gestures that come out of pure joy. Like opening the door for someone. Or forgiveness, when the heart can, when it can. We live into this flowering of dharma and it it supports us, it holds us, it guides us. (laughs) 
it's so imperfect. When I first started teaching, I, it was a struggle, you know, because I, I really, I had this really deluded idea that somehow, you know, I had to be perfect at what I was teaching about. And it felt disingenuous. You know, and I, I talked to my other teachers about it. You know, I, I, it, it took a while to live into, like, it, that's not what it's about. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying these things to you because this, this human being has mastered it all. But if we wait for that, we're never going to show up for each other. If we wait to say it perfectly or do it right, we're never going to speak up when we hear another person say something that might be racist or homophobic or um, prejudiced in some way. We may never say anything because we don't know how to do it right. Or maybe we just find a way to say, like, oh, that's hard or that feels uncomfortable or we find a way we find a way to speak or to another like that hurt my feelings like it takes courage to say that we don't know what kind of result we're going to get a lot of times you get defensiveness if someone feels shame they're going to be defensive it's not your fault but sometimes it's enough to just say this is what's happening for me we we get we get more skilled at relating, but it's not perfect. And we can come back to our practice. You know, we can come back to perhaps taking some time for reflection or silence or, you know, time with ourselves. Slow it down. That's one of the greatest gifts of being on retreat, isn't it? Even though there are moments we hate it, it's just having that time to slow down and pay attention. It allows the nervous system to settle. So I really invite you to um, continue, you know, continue uh, to listen. You know, to listen to what reveals itself, you know, through your commitment to waking up, and to to respect that and to give it time and space in whatever way that you can, and that's going to be different for all of us. It might be in serving others. You know, it might be coming on retreat. It might be um, just taking some alone time. Rumi said, this human being is a guest house. Yeah, we've heard this probably. Pretty, pretty familiar poem. Every morning a new arrival, we welcome and entertain these arrivals. We entertain them all. Why? Because they're there, right? And if we fight them, we know what's going to happen. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each... I can't read my writing. Treat each guest honorably. Treat each guest honorably that they, because they may be clearing you out for some new delight. We don't have to get thrown. Treat each guest honorably because they may be clearing you out for some new delight. Hmm. 
The fruits of this practice are wisdom and love, and they are inextricably a part of each other. In fact, they're inseparable. You may have different doorways that understanding reveals itself. It may be through more the wisdom doorway. It may be through the loving-kindness practice. If the loving-kindness practice is really hard for you, don't worry about it. Because love comes through wisdom. And wisdom comes through love. And Nisargata said, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between the two, my life flows. So may you make room for these guests and may you make room for and cultivate and nourish the seeds and roots of wisdom and love in your being. And may that flow to every, every being that you touch. Thank you. Let's sit together. May the fruits of our practice be of benefit to all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.